You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Every time I come here, I mess up the recording, I promise, and so I'm trying not to do it today. Good to go? Go. Fantastic. I'm going to be up front here. My name is Mike. Yes. Oh, you know what? Don't play with it. Just, Just hold it. Don't, don't, don't let it distract you or anyone else around you, please. <laughs> That's a great question. I appreciate that. You know, one of the things I love about the, the well is you can, this is a place where regardless of where you've been, or where you are, you're welcome. And um, it, it's, a, it's a place where you can find hope and joy and, um, and refreshment. And so much so, nothing speaks that louder than having germex at the community table. <laughs> so, just, just so you know, it's a, it's a fantastic um, illustration there. Um, I am Mike. I'm from, I'm from Kearney, Nebraska, at the Table Church there. It's just a joy to be able to be here with you and to, and to share in God's Word and what God is doing. Um, Joe and I are, are like, I mean, we're as close as brothers as they come. And um, it's just, just to be able to do ministry together the way we do and just ministering to each other's hearts, which he does so well to me, and I hope I do as well with him. Um, but also to be able to come in and just to be able to invest in you as a congregation, as a flock that has been entrusted um, to us here on earth is just, it's just a beautiful thing. And so um, we're going to just jump right into what we're speaking about. I'm not going to spend any time on much of it, of introduction or il- illustrations to start off. Let's not make this fancy. Let's go right to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, and it reads this way from the ESV is where I'm at. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a not a lover of money, <clears throat> he must manage his own, his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Kind of a funny passage maybe to preach here to an overall congregation. We think of this as we're looking at overseers that is an elder on the shepherds of the flock that God has instituted. We look at deacons also in these ways. These are, these are offices. These are, uh, these are, these are 
privileged positions that are, that are callings on your heart. As we study out the word, these words here of elder and deacon, we also understand from the scripture, these, these are specified towards men in the church. Um, this is not where I'm going with this, but understand, we also need to look at this and understand this, this true statement. As he goes through these, these verses, he doesn't stop with just the men that are the elders or just the men that are deacons. He very specifically specifies and brings out wives, specifies and brings out children and families. This is a text that is rich for family heritage. This is a text that is rich for gospel community of what it means to live in the likeness of Christ. And this is the reason I want to bring this with you this morning is because as he comes and he talks about this, this office of the elder, he says, if anyone aspires or desires such an office, this word aspire, desire uh, is, 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 very, is very distinct. He, what, literally what he's asking is, do you want it? As, as, you, as you see what is out there, not or like, is this some sort of standard that is holding you back or some sort of bar that you're like, I don't know if I can get that. Is this this thing that you look at and you're like, I want to be more Christ-like in this way. This is how I want to grow and, and, and submit myself to Christ. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we're going to refer to this story a couple times. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, let me read that with you. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now there in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In, those, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And, and this is the concept I want us to stop on this morning. And I want you to really think about. I don't know where you're at in life, but I know we all go through this thing called life, right? We, we've been dealt these cards of a flesh that is a sinful nature that, is, that just continually comes and tries to haunt us and, 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 and pursues us and, and knocks us down if we do not continually, as, as, as Paul says, crucify ourselves daily, it will continue to crucify us. It, it is a burden that we cannot and dare not try to handle on our own. But my question is the question that Jesus asked these people here. And here's the question for you this morning. I want you to ask this inside your head. Do you want to get well? Or are you just okay with who you are? Do you want to take the steps to be a mature believer and to grow into Christ wants you to be? What are you willing to go through personally? What are you willing to go through professionally? What are you willing to go through recreationally, financially, emotionally, relationally? What are you willing to go through in order to be who Christ wants you to be? But even more so, a gospel community, a gospel transformed individual who can go out and impact the bride of Christ with love. You have to want it. You have to want it. This kind of transformation 
doesn't just happen. The transformation of being saved, that's a whole different transformation I'm talking about. But this transformation from being where you're saved to going and being a true mature disciple of Christ, you've got to want it. You've got to work at it. You've got to submit yourself to it. This is not a position or a title. What we're talking about is protecting the bride of Christ. I had a friend, actually I had two friends named Bo and Daniel. Bo and Daniel were both in student ministries I was a part of. And Bo and Daniel both ended up over time being on presidential guard for President Clinton. Pretty, pretty amazing, amazing feat and, and things like that. Pretty honorable. And I, I just, when I got an opportunity to sit down and talk with them, and Bo was the one who really gave me this conversation, um, I really, really sat down and really kind of drilled them because I was just intrigued of what this was like. And I said, how, how in the world did you get to be on presidential guard? And he said, you know, they asked a weird question. And he goes, I think this was the question, the reason I got in. Here's the question they asked me. Do you want to die for the president? Not, would you be willing to die? Not, are you prepared to die? Not, what extent will you go to to protect the president? But the question is, do you want to die for the president? And he said, it was like almost, there was this thing, it's like there's no other choice. As you take this on, you, you will die for the, for the president. And he said, I talked to all these other guys that have been there, and they said, he asked, do you think that question was weird? And he said, oh, no, I talked about how if this situation came up, here's who I'd do these kind of things, and I'd be willing to um, if, 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 if it came upon. And, and he said, when they asked me that question, the only thing that came to my mind was I'd be honored. He goes, so that's what I answered. Here's the question. Do you want to die for Christ? And do you want to die even more so for the bride of Christ? Will you do whatever it takes to love and to direct and to protect the bride of Christ, to take people and understand that they are dirty, that they are filthy, and they need the love of Jesus Christ, and we must come alongside of them? Will you prepare yourself? Will you set yourself aside for the service of a king? That's called holiness, being set aside. Will you set yourself aside? Will you prepare yourself physically? Will you prepare yourself emotionally? Will you prepare yourself mentally and spiritually and saying, I am in a war for the kingdom of God and I will do everything it takes. I have six kids, five of them are boys. There are times when I leave the house that I'm leaving and my wife and the boys are there together. I pray for their, her safety from them. But I also, um, I also pray for my boys to be men of God and to be protectors of my household. And I literally, I don't know if Rochelle knows, I literally each time, if I'm gonna be gone, I don't care if it's five minutes or five days, I will pull whatever boys are there and I'll pull them and look at them and I say, that's my wife you're protecting. You'll protect her, right? You're the man of the household right now. I need you to step up to do whatever it takes, right? But I think about that with God. As Jesus came down here to earth, and he leaves the spirit with us to direct us, right? But he's up there, and he, and he leaves the bride of Christ to us, to love, to nurture, to, to go and to preach the gospel to. Do we take it that seriously? 
Have you and will you continue to make the changes that are and the sacrifices that are necessary for you to guide and to love the bride of Christ? So as we're looking at this, we need mature leaders. That's what we're talking. We're talking about a maturing process. So how do we do this? I like to read. Joe likes to read more than I do. But I like to read. Books, books will help. It's good. Read books. There's a lot of wise men out there who wrote a lot, a lot of wise things. And so read those things. Other leaders, I try to surround myself with other leaders. I try to contemporaries, older men. I even like to hang out with some younger dudes that are, that are coming along the way. It, it just refreshes, the, as, as David say, it renew to me the joy of my salvation. That's what it does for me. And so I put other leaders around me, and iron sharpens iron, and that's very good. And, and you need that also. Maybe putting yourself in the position of leadership where you're just like, hey, you know what? I have ability to serve, so I'm going to do that. Stepping up and doing that, whatever it may be of being part of a gospel community group or maybe helping lead one or start one or maybe serving in, in kids or whatever it may be your heart is, that's important as well. All those things do those. But we have to be careful as we're maturing because if you look at those things, whether it's books or being, or being around other leaders or putting yourself in position, there's one constant in all those things as I hear that. It's what I can do. And so we have to be very careful because becoming a leader of Christ, you cannot self-help your way to, to leadership. You must submit yourself to Christ to get to leadership. So I want to take the next few minutes and I want to explain why I believe regular praying and fasting is absolutely necessary for you to mature as a leader. I'd actually go as far as to saying it's non-negotiable. If you really want to be close to Christ, if you really want to lead and grow in maturing as a, as a leader, you must be closer to Christ. I have a little brother, his name's Chad. If you were to talk to Chad on the phone, you would be immediately think, it's me, okay? Our voices sound eerily the same. So, so much so when he used to need to break up with a girlfriend, I'd do it for him because he couldn't hack it. Okay? <laughs> True story. Um, but God gives each of us, even though our voices sound very much the same, God gives each of us our own voice print, our own inflection, the way our voice sounds. It can sound alike, but there's still differences in that. Some guys talk really fast and loud, okay? All right, and so that, the things like this happen. God gives us our voice print, but he not only gives us our own voice print physically, but God gives us our vo own voice print spiritually. What do I mean by that? God speaks through you different than he will speak through anyone else on the face of this earth. You have the ability with your story with the way God has touched your life, your voice print, you have the ability to be able to, to come before others. And when you speak that, your voice will have a different impact than mine or Joe's or Eric's or anyone else's in this room will have. Here's my question. How much time a day do you spend in prayer? I'm not trying to guilt you into anything here. I'm just asking a serious question. How, how many weeks out of a year do you fast? Do, do you know when those weeks are coming up? And do you have time when all of a sudden it's like, I need to, and so you just, you're just able to do that? Is, that? is that a normal rhythm of your spiritual walk? 
praying and fasting. You know, when too much white noise comes into my life, the static, you guys ever experienced that static? When that static comes, you're not hearing God the way you want to. There's too much white noise going on. And I'm having a hard time hearing the voice of God. I, I go into a season of fasting. Why? Because that's what I see in Scripture. That, that's what Jesus did. That's what Daniel did. It's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. It's what Jesus taught his disciples to do. Fasting is like noise cancellation. It helps me tune out all the other voices, all the other noise in my life that I shouldn't be listening to, and it allows me to tune into God's frequency so that I'm with him. Let me know, am I the only one here that sometimes it's hard to distinguish between my own thoughts and the inaudible voice of the Holy Spirit? Am I the only one here that has trouble with that sometimes? I mean... I'm like, is it, am I just thinking that or God, is that you? God, I, I don't know. I can't, please, could you make this more clear for me? But just like a relationship with a loved one, as we spend more and more time listening to God through his word, so submitting to God through prayer, I'm going and actually getting rid of things in our life and sacrificing to God through our, through our fasting. As we go through this, just like any other relationship with a loved one, we will begin to discern his voice more accurately. Eventually, it will become like the voice of your spouse that you can hear in amongst of a group, and that voice sticks out to you. Or like when you have your kids in a playground, there's 100 kids out there, your kids cry, can cry out above all the others, or your kids cry for mom or dad, you can hear that voice even though 100 other kids are saying it. All of a sudden, because you're around it so much, that voice begins to tune in, and you will be able to interpret even the subtlest intonations from the Holy Spirit speaking into your life. As a leader, we should never be trying to find a way for what's my platform. The first thing we need to always do is open the Bible, right? When we open the Bible, God opens his mouth. If we truly believe this is the holy inspired word of God, when we open the Bible, God opens his mouth. And when God opens his mouth, he will speak to you. But God never stops there. As you open the Bible, God opens his mouth, he speaks to you, but then he will begin to speak through you. And as you allow the Bible to be open to God to speak to you, as God begins to speak through you, others will begin to listen because you finally have something to say. You are holding the words of life, the words of hope in your hand, in your mouth, in your mind, in your heart, and they come out and they will transform lives. But it gets hard. Because if you truly spend time in the word and in prayer, you will notice things about yourself the way God starts to convict you. And let's be honest, none of us enjoy that. Some of us long for it because we know we need it, but it's still not an enjoyable process. When God starts to maneuver and starts to shave off those hard edges, and many of us, as we get to those spots, we stop listening to the Holy Spirit because we don't like the conviction. 
But hear me out here. If we are not willing to be in the word of God and listen to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit, if you cannot bear yourself to hear the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to fail to hear his comforting voice as well. And you're going to fail to hear his forgiving voice and his merciful voice. And you're going to start to wonder, God, where are you? You see, what sin does is sin creates a relational distance. And distance makes it harder for us to hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. The more distance, the more static. The more static, the faster you need to get to your knees and in the word and fast so you can grow and draw yourself closer to God. We need to have a time in the word of God, not every day. We need to have a time in the word of God numerous times every day. We need to have a schedule of fasting throughout the year and then also come and fast when it's needed. And what about prayer? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Thessalonians. Get there. First Thessalonians 5.18. First Thessalonians 5.18 says this. Let's just actually start in verse 16. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And then he says in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. When, God, when Paul says here is to pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean to retreat from the routine of your life. He means to redeem every routine of your life and to begin to turn those routines into prayer. The question is, can we have contact with God all of the time? There's a gentleman by the name of Frank Laubach. He was in the 1930s, and he began a prayer experiment and he called the prayer experiment the game of minutes. And here's what he said in his game of minutes. Here's what it is. He goes, we try to call God to mind at least one second of every minute. We do not need to forget other things nor stop our work, but we invite God to share everything we do or say or think. What a great idea. Every minute, take one second. It doesn't sound like that hard, right? Every minute, take one second, one sixtieth, and, and, and think of God for that one sixtieth. He said, if we can do that, you'll continually be thinking of God. One of the ways he suggested implementing it, and I've tried this and I like it, he says, is to shoot people. Now, if you're kind of weirdo, don't, don't take that literally. <laughs> if you are one of those people, we'll have an elder up here or a man up here to pray with you afterwards, okay? That'd be fantastic. Um, and so it's not literally, not like, the, 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 he, he talks about when people walk by to see them and pray for them like you're shooting them. Now don't go like, like that's not like that, okay? None of that stuff is kind of, it's kind of awkward. He says, simply pray for people whenever you make eye contact with them. Whenever you see someone as an individual, pray for that person right then, regardless of who it is, whether you know them or not. Now you may not believe me, in this, but I tried this quite a bit. And it is uncanny, uncanny 
When you're sitting in a mall, I like the mall watch. Anyone else a mall watcher? Okay, all right. And so as people are walking by in a mall or Walmart, which is weird, and other places there, and you see these people, and you're walking by, and you see them, you're like, oh, I just saw the individual, and you pray for them. It is uncanny how many of those people, maybe 15, 20 yards away from you, as you're praying for them silently, not out loud, don't make, hey, I'm praying for you. That's weird, okay? Just praying quietly as they walk by will stop, look around, and turn and look at you. You're like, oh. And that would be weird if God only resided just in my heart. But that's not weird if God is omnipresent like he claims he is and could be everywhere all the time, that he could be working on that heart while he's working on my heart, that he could be answering the prayer inside that person's heart even before and while I'm praying it. It is uncanny. It is uncanny when you're having a conversation with somebody and as you're talking to them face to face, if you will just stop and have a word of prayer for them in your head while you're talking with them, you will see their countenance begin to change. And they'll open up. The simple act of praying for somebody, praying for everybody I encountered, it turned into a routine of a daily adventure. I like adventure. And all of a sudden you start thinking of how many people can I pray for? There's sometimes I'll meet somebody and I'll think, oh, okay, I'm like, I think I know you. And there have been a couple times that God's been like, you prayed for them once. I never met them. I disconnected to them. When you walk into a meeting or a group of people at work, why not just stop in your head, look at each one of them, and pray a prayer in your mind, in your heart, for each one of those people. Ask God for favor. Ask God for discernment. Ask God for grace. When you leave, or when they are leaving a meeting, or whatever it may be, or leaving the lunchroom, pray a prayer of blessing over them. Listen to this statement. It's a good one, okay? It is your right and your responsibility to pronounce blessing over everyone in your life. If we will begin to change our hearts in that way, it's your right and your responsibility to pronounce blessing over everyone in your life. It will begin to change our hearts and to change the world around us. Prayer will become at praying without ceasing is what will happen. I have even started thinking of worry as my prayer alarm. Anytime I worry, it means I need to pray. As a matter of fact, so much so, I, I, I voiced this once at a, at a men's retreat with, with these men here. And about a week ago, I was calling Joe because, like I said, he's my inner circle, and I was whining to him because that's what I do, okay? And so I was whining to Joe about things in life. And he goes, somebody told me once that, you know, when you pray, when you're worrying, it's like a prayer alarm. I said, shut up, okay? <laughs> Quit wasting your worries, Quit wasting your worries on, on stopping your life and, and, and holding your life back. You allow your worries to be a prayer alarm. Allow them to be the moment of God saying, hello, I can help in this situation. Hello, turn this over to me. Hello, this is not your burden to carry. This is mine. I want it. I'll take it. You just have to give it. I was in a meeting also with Joe once, and he um, had us pray through Scripture. And it was just, it's something I'd done many times, but in that, I'd always done it myself. In a, in a corporate setting, it was so beautiful. But as he did that, it made my mind go crazy. I mean, I just started, I started stirring because I was working on this as it happened. And I was trying to find ways that I could be praying through my life. And I thought, if we can pray through Scripture, why, why can't I pray through the newspaper? 
Why can't I pray through the local news? Please, okay? What if I turn my lunch meetings into prayer meetings? What if I turn my chores into prayers? Like, for instance, what if when I'm folding my children's clothes, I started praying for each of them individually for them to be clothed with the righteousness of God? For them to be clothed with the armor of God? What if as I was doing projects around the house of restoring things, I would begin to pray about me being a restorer of broken relationships? What if I talked, we're working with things that I don't like to do, but needing to get them done because they're necessary. I would think about some of those people that are hard for me to love. And I start to pray for them and for me to step up and be a catalyst for the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life? What if when I'm driving, I would actually cast all my cares upon him as opposed to casting all my insults upon the other drivers? <laughs> what if I tuck, when I tuck my kids into bed, the last words they ever hear each night would be the prayers that their father is praying over their head? What if when I meet someone, in my head I pray for them by name as we talk? What can you pray through in your life? One of the newest prayer routines of my, of my life, I, I think it was, um, oh, what's the dude at Saddleback's name? I don't, can't think of his name. Rick Warren. He, I think he's the one that said this, and it, it kind of caught on with me. Anyway, he said one of, his, one of his things is every day, the first thing he does is getting out of bed, the first thing that hits the ground is his knees. He slides out of bed purposely to his knees, and the first words out of his mouth audibly are prayers to God. He says, the first thing I do every day, I want God to have my first thoughts and my first words. I have found as I do this, it dials me into God's frequency. It sets the tone for my day, and it also sets a very important thing for my pride. It sets the posture for my entire day. The reason that most people don't feel intimacy with God is they don't have a prayer rhythm. What is your prayer rhythm? Are you speaking to God? There is no way to grow close in relationship if you don't seek out relationship. My grandma used to say all the time that the shortest distance between you and God is the distance between your knees and the floor. Even though I don't, I don't disagree with that, you don't have to pray that way. Prayer isn't something that we do with our eyes closed. Prayer is something we should be doing with our eyes wide open. We should be aware of the world around us and we should be constantly coming before the throne room of God, bringing the requests that are needed to be heard and, and interceding for the flock. Try experimenting, experimenting with a new posture. Maybe you walk when you pray. Maybe you kneel when you pray. Try experiment with different types of fasts. Maybe you fast from food. Maybe you fast from TV. Maybe you fast from the internet or social media. But remember, the key to a fast is not not doing something. The key to a fast is what you do instead of that something. Investing your life into the word of God and into prayer. And so if it's social media, it's not just stopping doing Facebook and filling it with your other projects, but stop doing Facebook and start filling it with prayer. Mark Batterson says a change of pace plus a change of place equals a change of perspective. If you want God to do something new in your life, you can't keep doing the same old things. Do something new. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. Bring it out. 
No one else is talking back to me today. You guys might as well. Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through, uh, no, we'll go through about 34 or so. Matthew 20, 29. And they went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on, by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight. And they followed him. More than a thousand years after the first Jericho miracle, when they walked around the city of Jericho, remember, and the walls came tumbling down, more than a thousand years after the first Jericho miracle, another miracle happened in the same place. These two men cry out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The disciples saw this as an inconvenience. They saw it as an interruption. But divine appointments can be mistaken as interruptions every time. Divine appointments never happen on our schedule because we're not divine. They're God's schedule. And Jesus stopped and he asked the two men a quite loaded question. What do you want me to do for you? First question I have is this. Was that question even necessary? Everyone knew they were blind. Everyone knew what they wanted. Isn't it obvious, Jesus? But here, listen, this is so important. This is so important for your life, right? Listen to this. Jesus forced them to define exactly what they wanted from him. It wasn't because Jesus didn't know what they wanted. He wanted to make sure that they knew what they wanted. So it begs me to ask the question, what if Jesus were right here? speaking to you, speaking to me. And he's looking you in the face and he says, now as a group, individually here, what do you want me to do for you? What would your answer be? You can't be selfish in this thing because Jesus is going to see right through that, right? You're not going to ask God for a million bucks at that moment. And remember, this is not Jesus is the genie in the bottle. He's going to grant your wishes. I'm not saying that at all. What do you want me to do for you? Would you be able to spell out the promises of God that he's given you? Would you be able to spell out the miracles that you know can happen? Would you be able to spell out the dreams that God has put on your life, your specific voice print? Would you be able to spell out those dreams to God and to say, God, I am so close to you in my prayer and what I read in your word and what I know from your spirit directly given me into times of fasting and sacrifice. I know this is your will. I know this is what you want. I beg you to grant to me what you have already willed upon on me can your heart be in such a spot that you are so in tune with God that when he comes to you the very thing you beg him for is the very thing he desires to give you all your life 
There's no way of knowing this without an intimate relationship. There's no way of knowing this without submitting yourself to God. Would you be able to spell it out to him today? I'm afraid many of us have no idea what we want God to do for us. And then we wonder why God isn't doing anything for us. Before you question God, question yourself. God, do I even know you? God, what can I do to know you better so I can hear from you? Have you ever made life goals? Have you ever defined what godly success looks like in a life? You know, we've forgotten most of our prayers before they even become answered. If I were to ask you what you prayed for last night, you wouldn't be able to tell me unless you have some rote prayer you say all the time. Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is being sure of what we hope for, right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for, Hebrews chapter 11. If that's true, if faith is being sure of what we hope for, then not being sure of what we hope for is the exact opposite of faith. If you're not sure what you hope for, you lack faith. How do you gain faith? Faith comes through a relationship with Jesus and trusting and knowing so many of our prayers are just plain old vague. We have vague prayers. I had an old guy, his, his name was um, Mr. Hopper, okay? Mr. Hopper, he's at the college. He was the custodian at the college and was just full of wisdom. He's the dude that gave me the first opportunity to preach in this little tiny church that he was a, he, he's an elder at. He was a mentor to me, and he said these words one time. I prayed, and he stopped me. In the middle of my prayer, he goes, you stop that. I said, stop what? He says, God doesn't answer vague prayers. I'm like, Whoa, 19-year-old kid, what am I supposed to do with that? I've been convicted by that statement every since of my life. My lack of faith often doesn't allow me to go out on a limb and lay down my true request to God. My lack of understanding who God truly is keeps me from asking him for what he can truly do. My limitations in my head keep me from praying the prayer that God can do right now for you. So many of our prayers are vague because I'm afraid that God might not answer my prayer. I don't give him a chance to answer. How ridiculous. I've come to realize this truth that the more I believe in God, the more faith I have. True? But it doesn't stop there for me. The more I believe in God, the more faith I have. And the more faith I have, the more specific my prayers are. Specific. And guess what? The more specific my prayers are, that's not selfishness because you know what happens? The more specific your prayers are, the more glory God receives because when you pray a specific prayer to God, there is no other answer except for God did it. 
is unmistakable to you and then it'll be unmistakable to the world because you will have no other place to give credit. The more specific you are in your prayer life, the more, the more praise and glory God receives. There's no other way to explain specific prayers being answered. The only other way, if you're specific, it has to be God. But when we pray so vague, God, take care of my children. God, please provide food tomorrow. When we pray so vague like this, we never know if the answers were a result of specific prayers or just general coincidence. Well-defined prayers give God an opportunity to display his power in marvelous ways. Too often in our prayers, we rob God the opportunity to answer our prayers because they're so vague. We don't need to worry about when God's gonna answer or how God's gonna answer. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to simply discern what God wants and then humbly yet boldly ask him to do what he says he will do. To come before God and say, you said this, here I am, God, in your word, I'm submitting to you. God, I pray that you would do what you said. And Jesus is still asking that question today. Jesus is still asking the question, what would you want me to do for you? And Jericho can be spelled a million ways in our life. If, you've been, if you have a deadly diagnosis, Jericho might be spelled healing. If your best friend is far from God, it could be spelled salvation. If your family or your marriage is falling apart, Jericho could be spelled reconciliation. If things are tight financially at the church, which I know they are, I pray for you every day. But if things are tight financially, then it might be spelled provision. God promises. This is not name it, claim it. That's, that's garbage. That's garbage. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying when you submit yourself to the will of God and you have faith, you will come with a boldness to ask the prayers that God is begging you to pray. Without faith, the best you can do will always be the best that you can do. I said again, without faith, the best you can do is will always be the best that you can do. But with faith, the best you can do becomes the best that God can do. Amen? If I don't tithe, then the best I can do is the best that I can do. But when I tithe, I place my faith and my finance is in Christ. And I say, I know I think I need this money for this. I know I think you need to hold this money back for this. But God, I submit to your will and I believe that you have something better in store. I think your plan is better than my plan with my money. I know you are better, and I know I don't need another dollar. When you begin to think that kind of stuff, then the best you can do is the best that God can do. Because you've submitted, you've relinquished to God. Most of us have a scarcity mindset. Like the more we give away, the less we have. That's, that's an unbiblical assumption. It sounds right in this world. But tithing is trusting. Write that down. Tithing is trusting. 
And when you put God first financially, you will live with sanctified expectation. You will not be able to wait. You just can be so excited to wait and see the wild ways our God will, um, will provide in the ways that he provides. That doesn't mean every dollar you're gonna give is gonna give you two. I'm not saying that. But he will provide for you because all of a sudden your sustenance and the way you exist will be made in Christ, not in yourself. Mark Batterson says you need to pray like it depends only on God. And after you do that, go work like it depends on you. Your leaders, submit to the Lord, then rise to your calling. Don't wait till you're ready. You'll never be ready. You'll never feel like you have enough faith. You will never feel like you have enough cash. You'll never feel like you have enough courage. And if you're looking for an excuse, guess what? You'll always find it. I have never been, and I'm sure I never will be ready for anything God has called me to do. That doesn't mean I haven't prepared myself. Paul says, I beat my body daily into submission. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. I know you're getting both barrels, but my goodness, I'm not going to be back for a while. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham was in a tent. And God called him out and showed him the stars, remember? He says, Abraham, count the stars. Then I imagine God was just quiet. And Abraham's trying to count. He's like, oh, missed it. You know, starting over. I mean, how do you count the stars, right? Abraham didn't know his final destination, but that didn't keep Abraham from taking the first step. Abraham didn't stay within his little safe eight-foot ceiling. Man created eight-foot ceiling that he was living in. He stepped out of that tent and he stepped into his intent. God took him out of where he thought he should be, where Abraham thought he should be, and placed him and said, let me show you what I want you to be. Let me train you and teach you. Let me show you, you have this eight-foot ceiling restricting you. Let me show you the vastness of the stars and let me tell you what I will do with your descendants. Let me take you to a place you do not know, but you, I will take you there. If you take the first step, God will reveal the second step in his time with his will. He always gives us just enough revelation, just enough grace, just enough strength. Why is it always just enough? Well, so I will need to live on a daily dependence on him. He doesn't want me to rely on another revelation. He wants me to rely on him. He doesn't want me to rely on getting more grace. He wants me to rely on him. He doesn't want me to rely on finding more strength. He wants me to rely on him. And as I rely on him, I will find the revelation. I will find the grace and I'll find the strength that I so desire to find. Don't wait for more revelation to be obedient. Be obedient right where God has placed you and see where he takes you next. Our failure to act 
Our failure to act on what we know God is calling us to do, and you guys have that in your life. I'm not, you can't deny that. You felt something in your heart of like God saying, do this. Your failure to act on what God has called you to do, the word for that is called disobedience. It's called sin. And I'm calling you out today, church. Well, church, I'm calling you out today. I'm calling you out to an approach to life that dares you to dream. That frees you from the restrictions of what this world is saying is, is okay and is correct. I'm, I'm calling you out to approach to approach a life that, that you are bent towards action. You are always in the waiting, waiting for God to say go. And you, as soon as he does, you're just shooting out of those starting blocks like nothing else. You're pushing against the, 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 the wall that's holding you back that is God's, God's, God's grace that's holding you back. And when he opens that up, you're ready to go. I, I, I'm, I'm calling you out to approach to life that, that doesn't look for excuses, but is constantly, constantly desiring to be within the will of God. We're so afraid of failing that often we don't do what is right. Here you go. Pray. Fast. Be in the word. Surrender to him. And then, cry out loud, do something about it. Get to work. After a message like this, you've heard enough? Go and do something with this. Pray like it depends on God. But once you're done, pray. Go, go work like it depends on you. It is my joy and honor to bring to you the truth of the word. And to, and to just present it in such a way that's pretty straightforward. I know it is. You're listening to an audio message from The Well a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.